Scientists tell an origin story, a kind of creation myth, of how the funny little eukaryote microbes came to be. Endosymbiosis. Symbiosis. A mutual relationship where one cell lives happily in another. In science, to speak of it is taboo. But it reminds me of a creation myth that scientists tell, a kind of origin story for breath itself. It says, once upon a time, about two billion years ago, there were tiny little organisms everywhere. They were all over the planet. Now these were mostly bacteria and were reproducing like crazy. And from all known accounts, they were really content just swimming around feeding off the sun or each other as predators and prey do, they were in a sense very happy. But there was another species, the salt-loving archaea, whose strength and virility thrived in extreme environments, but by all accounts also seemed content. And although most archaea were happy living side by side with the energy-rich bacteria, for like half a billion years. In all that time, and throughout the entire planet, there was at least one tiny microbe that was struggling. Now bacteria are simple, but this bacteria had something the archaea didn't have. The potential to produce energy without the sun or prey. Seeing the weaker bacteria with more creative energy made the archaea, well, unsatisfied. Some might call this unsatisfaction boredom, greed, or inferior feelings that inevitably led to a kind of microbial despair. And this was not dissimilar to what Christian monks, much later, called the dreaded noonday demon, an energy, an impulse so profound that it's said to leave the monks without the strength to bury the dead. But the Buddhists simply call this state grasping or doubt. Whatever the demons, the complaining archaea may have been filled with judgment, irritation, insecurity, but whatever the case, they were merely variations on wanting what isn't and resisting what is. Now, I'm not suggesting that single-cell organisms have feelings, let alone existential ones. But in 1967, the biologist Dr. Lynn Margulis uttered the sacrosanct, the taboo. She said, yeah, it was true that on a particular day, two billion years ago, a symbiotic opera took place. The union of two species was more than predator-prey, hunter and hunted, and more like a consensual scene of a dominant species engulfing a submissive one with the only orifice it has for controlling food excrement and flow. 
So bacteria and archaea look alike to us humans, and this visual similarity can, well, really fool us because what we can't see is that their force is as distinct as Neanderthals from humans. The billowing exhale of a smoker and the spray of an air freshener. Or maybe Sarah Jessica Parker's tight blonde curls and ramen noodles. Or as distinct as PCs and Macs, or even Americans and Canadians. They look alike on the outside, but their forces are distinct. The fateful taboo of these unsatisfied organisms, the scene of their animal play, produced a new energy, mitochondria, and with it, a new ability to grow, a sort of artificial intelligence that can morph and evolve into moss, frogs, bees, trees, animals, and eventually us. Because this opera produced an AI that eventually created breath itself. We can see the most abundant remnants of this special union in our own human heart. But what's fascinating about the birth of nature's great reproduction experiment is that the baby cells, these new species of eukaryotes, is that they're not only the ancestors to both plants and animals, but it's that they pass these features on to their offspring. What I mean is, is that if you, as a human, wanted to have longer eyelashes, you could swallow the eye of a giraffe and poof! Not only would you have longer eyelashes, but all your children and their children will have longer eyelashes too. Haven't seen a plastic surgeon be able to do that trick. So, the new single-cell organism, like dinoflagellates, use their joyful new skill to create maybe 25,000 variations of themselves, each one with its own specialty, gimmick. They swim, of course, feed energy from the sun, some light up. Altogether, they make more oxygen than the entire Amazon forest. And even though they're only one cell, some have straws that function like smoothie machines. So, who needs to go through the whole bother of converting sunlight into food when you can just pierce a piece of prey and suck out someone else's hard-won chloroplast? Others carry baskets full of golden cyanobacteria balls that they toss into baskets that are, well, on their heads. Not only is this type of cyanobacteria available for munching at any time while swimming around, but it actually reproduces like a garden of mangoes, creating perpetual food for its critter. Another trick is that you can tell if their parents mated or cell divided. When dinoflagellates cell divide, their offspring have one flagellum. That's that uh, rudder-like tail that helps them swim. But when they mate, their baby dinos have two flagella. Another dinoflagellate has a harpoon that spirals out a projectile like the spinning torque 
of the U.S. military's precise and deadly weapons. These dinos use the same torque to precisely spear their prey before dragging it around like a cat playing with its conquest. So, these extraordinary critters, the size of a piece of dust, are still around, have been around for two billion years, and will clearly outlive humans. So you have to ask, like dinoflagellates, could diversity, physical, sexual, cognitive diversity in humans, also be a salvation to human longevity? Could looking at microbes have all sorts of untapped benefits in how we view people with dyslexia, for instance, ADHD, people with depression, food allergies, and other so-called abnormalities? Maybe one day every kid may have their very own psychoeducation evaluation that sorts them not into abnormalities, but rather specialties, like the dinoflagellates. This can also apply to a spectrum of fluid gender roles and human sexual biology. Trans men and women, for instance, or intersexuals. In other words, what if encouraging human diversity was not just a cultural, social, and intellectual asset, but also an evolutionary asset? A woman, Stephanie Fischel, takes this further. Comparing the human microbiome in all our bodies to the whole Earth's biosphere, she says that humans and non-humans are an assemblage in a permeable state of fluid bodies where all interactions are enmeshed. And this reminded me of neuron soup, a phrase where brain researchers study intelligence by looking at the number of neurons in a community, with no regard for how many bodies may be holding those neurons. So I started to think about our human relationships with other organisms and each other as being more fluid, more malleable and interconnected than we usually think. <laughs>